Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host, Emily Reese. Today, we're talking about hip versions of classics. So for me, I'm going to be talking about jazz versions of classical music. Uh, I happen to think classical music is already pretty hip, so I find our title mildly offensive. (laughs) I'm rolling my eyes over here. Anyway, and you're going to do the uh, Venice equivalent. What do you got? Hold on to your hats. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. There you'll find a really easy tier system. Um, We got corkscrews hot off the press. That's our $10 a month tier. Uh, There's other merch as well as patron-only content. And you'll also find on that same page a link to some merchandise if you so want to, you know, just support us on the street. And thank you so much to our existing patrons. We couldn't be doing this without you. So classical music is hip, huh? Well, yeah, man. Yeah, there's some really hip classical music. I don't know. Hip? Yeah. <laughs> let's look at the let's look at the definition of hip. I'll take that challenge. All right. Definition hip. A projection of the pelvis and upper thigh bone on each side of the body <laughs> in human beings and quadrupeds. The sharp edge of a roof from the ridge to the Eaves where the two sides meet. Okay, so that's not what we're looking for. Oh, there, slang term. Hip, like cool, does not refer to one specific quality. What is considered hip is continuous. Okay, that's Wikipedia. Let's not even look at that. Let's look at, <laughs> let's look at down, because it'll say Merriam-Webster right there. The laterally okay. projecting region. Okay. Here you go. Having or showing awareness of or involvement in the newest developments or styles. So what you're saying is that there was a time when classical music was hip. I guess it's been a while. Awareness of or involvement in showing awareness of. I mean. Yeah, but newest kind of. Yeah, sorry. But it me, we also... Don't people, I mean, don't people sometimes say hip means cool? Like, oh, that's hip. Well, I mean, there's like that Huey Lewis in the News song that's like, too hip to be square. So it's definitely not cool. Well, I think it's there, it's twofold. It's that definition. Like you're on the cusp of, you're like ahead of trend, we'll say. Yeah. Or knowing or part of trend, or you are just definitely. The opposite of not cool than your hip. Okay. So I guess in some ways classical music can be hip, but I think there was a time when it was hip. Whereas jazz, I think you wonder if jazz just is considered hip. We're we're just using the word wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking at this the thesaurus part. How this came to be was Emily wanted to do a show on the jazz versions of classical music. And well, I was like, yeah, I'll do the hip wine version yeah. of classic, which I, for mine, it kind of makes a little bit of sense because we're going to be talking about two kind of trends or wines that we're going to, like styles and a wine that we're going to taste that are actually hip. They are ahead, yeah. trendier ahead of trend or yeah. um, better than a trend, but still part of a trend. Yeah. I don't know. So that's, yeah, that's just like not what I'm going to talk about. That's not how I'm using But that. jazz is yeah. so so tasty and Jazz hip. is hip and tasty. How yeah. did you, because you're, I would say, an expert in both mm. jazz and classical. Okay. You play jazz trumpet. Well. You, you play classical trumpet. Well, I mean, loosely speaking, yes. <laughs> And so you can speak to both, which is great. I drink a lot of wine, so yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> um, well, a friend of mine who's a pianist in town, his name is Larry McDonough. He's also a lawyer and advocate for the poor, which is amazing. He's had an amazing and well-decorated career of just like trying to help people, which mm-hmm. is cool. But he started as a band director. So, I mean, he's a musician as well. And I was talking to him and 
he said, you know, for your Scores and Bores podcast, you should do jazz versions of classical. And I mean, I've been aware of jazz versions of classical for, I mean, never. I mean, it's mm-hmm. out there. It's been there. Yeah. I just never, for some reason, thought about doing a show on it. And then I was just like, well, yeah. But then, I mean, it's like, where do you stop? Well, you told me. It's not even where do you start, it's where do you stop. Well, and you made a point a while ago, because we were talking about jazz, we were talking about someone that we both have an interest in, and you were like, it seems like there's not a ton of crossover in, like, listenership. Meaning, like you'd said, like, a lot of people that listen to classical music think that it's a certain way and that jazz isn't as maybe... You didn't use these words, but like classy enough or like mm-hmm. whatever. And then mm-hmm. the opposite is true where people that listen to jazz think that classicals can be like great music. It's just not like mm-hmm. it doesn't have that like soul, tasty vibe. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is that true that one of the reasons maybe you never thought of it is because it's like kind of hard to overlap them in, in terms of listen. Like a lot of people that are listening to this, this podcast obviously dig classical music. Yeah. Maybe they don't dig jazz, but I know actually quite a few people that listen to yeah. this that listen to both. I think I I don't honestly remember that conversation I had with you because I think there are a, peop- a lot of people who listen to both. There definitely are people within the world of classical music who definitely look down their nose at anything, not just jazz, mm-hmm. but they'll look down on anything that's not classical. Um, but I think I don't want to hang out with those people. They're they sound no boring already. They take the fun out of everything. They just drink Cabernet. And yeah. Pinot Grigio, and that's it. That's all they drink. <laughs> and they only have a half a glass, because God forbid. Oh, no. They, I think yeah. they probably have a lot of glasses, and they're really expensive <laughs> glasses, but they're shit. And they're, and they're just like, I need my $25, the bigger the better, please, Cabernet uh, Sauvignon. I don't know. I, let's, can you, let's pour some wine. Yeah, no, this that sounds amazing. Let's do it. Oh, my gosh. I'm wearing yellow pants, and yes. this cap matches... <laughs> This crown cap matches my yellow pants. Today okay. we're drinking Lord of the Rings wine. Well, it's called Edel's Vicar. <laughs> so it's actually G- German name for a French wine. <laughs> and I'll pour it as I talk about thematically how I'm going to go about giving this wine some context. But first, to scores and pours. Cheers. Mmm. Smells almost like cookies. Almost mm. like doughy, bready cookies. Tastes to me like kind of floral, a little angular, a mm. little bitter on the finish, like Ooh. a core of an apple that you bit into a little, you were digging it a little too much and you yeah. got that little hard piece. Yum. This is super, yeah, this is a super special wine uh, from a producer in Richmond, California, which is really close to Berkeley called Purity. And I'll tell you more about the wine in a second. But the reason I chose this wine today was when we think of classics in wine, we think of either classic regions or classic styles or classic grapes, right? And it's easiest to think about, in this case, you have a, a wine called Edel's Vicar. And just like we've talked about on Scores and Pours before, when you have a region or a style of wine that is governed, then there's a rule book that ev- so everybody can follow the same rules. Yeah. There's a tasting panel. So that all the wines are in the same kind of confined space of, of a palate and of aromatics. And what's good about that is that nobody can argue that that doesn't taste like this white wine or that red wine, or in this case, Edel's Vicar is a, is a blend of grapes, usually from Alsace in eastern France, very close to the German border. And in the case of classic wine regions, the thing is, is that leaves no room for play. You know, like you yeah. you don't have any creativity. And what happens if someone lived in Alsace and they had a blend of grapes, but they decided to make them in a natural vein and then it didn't taste like everybody else's Edelsvicker, so then they couldn't call it Edelsvicker. Yeah. You know? And so it's sort of like a, a, some people find it in like this catch-22 of like, well, do you conform and then give away your creativity and then you sell your wine probably for more money and more of it? Mm-hmm. Or do you just, you're the artist, the vigneron that kind of hangs back and does his or her own thing harder, you know, it's like the quintessential story of like walking five miles to and from school <laughs> in the snow kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is like kind of my trajectory in wine. <laughs> I feel like it's just been all uphill, but it's been because I champion and love wines like this. Mm-hmm. So Edel's Vicar, I digress because Emily was like, 
yeah, we're having Lord of the Rings wine today. I mean, Edel's Vicar just sounds like something you'd go get in a log cabin pub in snowy times with an elf and your mage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yes, and drink out of a horn, perhaps. Yeah. Yes, or a big stein. I mean, no, Edel's Vicar, seriously. The Edel's Vicar means noble mixture. And when we think about Edel's Vicar now... All sommeliers and wine professionals that know about this region know that Edelsvicker is a blend of noble varietals. There's no legal definition that it has to be X amount of Y grapes. Interesting. But, but there is, like, you think of the noble grapes in Alsace are Riesling, Muscat, Pinot Gris, and Gewürztraminer. So there's usually one or any combination of those grapes, but there's also... There can be Ajurois or Chasselas or Sylvaner or all these other really great varietals, but they're not known as noble varietals in Alsace. Hmm. Why? Uh, just because they're not as, one, age-worthy, B, as aromatic, C, they don't have the, I guess, the regal quality that, you know, there was a time where a lot of Riesling was very expensive in Germany. It was the world's, one of the world's most expensive and sought-after wines wow. um, in, in Europe at the time because mm -hmm, that's where mm -hmm. most wine production and distribution was. And everybody knows that that mixture is usually a winemaker's, can be really good quality, but it's usually their least expensive wine. They're making their Grand Cru Riesling and their Grand Cru Gewürz and their just namesake Riesling to sell to the masses, but they have this Edelsvicker that they can kind of dump everything into, make <laughs> more of it, and instead of selling it for $60, they can sell it for $15.99. Okay. That's, that's paying the bills. <laughs> In antiquity, the reason this is, this is the main reason why they call it, called it Edelsvicker, because it was in the past— Decades ago and even centuries ago, Edelsvicker meant noble mixture, but it was some of the best plots of the best grapes. A lot of times they were co-planted, meaning, you know, planted, Gewürz was planted amongst the Muscat, which was planted amongst the Pinot Noir, and it was all harvested together and made into one single vineyard cuvee or five rows of this cuvee. And so that that used to be the Edelsvicker, used to be the noble, I guess that I should have gotten right to that point, but I was kind of on my <laughs> follow the timeline, Jill. It used to be one of the best blends. And now it's sort of like a hodgepodge. Some people are kind of going back to that. Some people, if they make really good Grand Cru Riesling that you know you can't afford on the on the daily, yeah. buy their Edelsvicker and then save their Grand Cru blah, blah, blah to enjoy on a holiday mm -hmm. or the weekend or whatever. Okay. So setting the stage. For hip, because that's now we're talking about the classic, right? Yeah. So if there's no formula, quote unquote, for how many or what percentage is used for what, you know, you don't have to use 30% Riesling and 20% Verstermeen or whatever. How do they know how it's supposed to taste? Well, because not you don't always have to you're not always adding like a native, you're not letting your wine ferment naturally, right? A lot in a lot of cases oh. here. I mean, and Alsace is a great haven for some natural wine and native yeast fermentation, but there is a lot of bastardization of wine. So we do find like if you're dumping in Riesling yeast or Pinot Grigio yeast or Ajurois yeast or something, mm -hmm. your wines and you've got this blend in the end and you cold stabilize it and you filter it and then you do it in stainless steel, Yeah, you're going to, come out with this like very mildly aromatic but kind of neutral yeah medium bodied you could tell it's from there but it could maybe be from a few other places okay. too right so that's a great question usually an Edelsvicker has those qualities that is like you see online people say it's this bland huh. this and this and this wine yeah. Yeah. it's kind of like the you know the cheap and cheerful of all sauce yeah and okay. so after you get to some classics then yeah classic jazz once you top off some jazz and we'll <laughs> drink some more wine. Well, that sounds amazing. It, it really was both easy and difficult to know exactly what to talk about because, I mean, it's almost daily I'll play a, a piece by, you know, a classical composer that a jazz musician has gotten a hold of and put a different spin on. So there's a lot of examples of that and some performers really embraced it. Some jazzers really loved that idea and, and made careers out of it. And so we'll talk about some of those uh, musicians in just a moment. But just to start off, I want to play just one of my absolute favorite 
examples, which comes from Bud Powell. And Bud Powell was a pianist who was one of the first pianists known in the bebop era. So Bud Powell played with like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Monk in Mm -hmm. those early days of bebop forming. So Bud Powell lived from 1924 to 1966, and he took a piece by Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, which was one of Johann Sebastian Bach's sons. And Carl Philip Emanuel Bach's most famous piece, without a doubt, is called Solfege or Solfeggio or Solfeggietto. So let's listen to Bud Powell. And what's really cool is that he plays... Is that he's a Libra? Because <laughs> he is a Libra. Of course he is. Oh my God, that's amazing. September 27th, yo. Bud Powell, initially he plays the piece by C.P.E. Bach. And then he basically does his version of it, which is really cool. So we'll just hear all of it. Do you want to hear a little bit of the original? We definitely should hear the original. Okay, now should we Bud Powell? Yeah, so let's listen to Bud Powell now. Oh, it's so good. I know that we'll have to probably fast forward a little bit, uh, but because I noticed this piece is like two and a half times as long as the original. Yeah. Is that because he's, you know, doing his own riff? It's like jamming. He, There's no rules. Yeah, he it's played like very, the whole thing because he yeah. plays the whole CPE Bach piece and then gets into his, which is which, amazing. That's ex- exact, like, metaphor for what I was just describing in wine, classics versus what's coming up. Yep. Taste. Yeah, I love it. Right? It's just so great. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a great little number. It's just so like yep. tasty and just like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And he was classically trained, so he was super familiar with this. Piece. I was. I was going to ask you how. I mean, just because his first, you know, his execution on the beginning of this tune sounds yeah. like <laughs> like he's not just self-taught. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That's yep. awesome. Yep. So good. So good. Yeah, Bud Powell. So because we're just, because we've balked, can we balk again? I see another balk on the playlist. Let's just do that again. Well, let's do that again. I mean... First of all, I mean that here could, goes Emily. Yeah, I know. I mentioned Bach. Yeah, I We're know. Like, Let's settle in. <laughs> Let's just open that can of worms. <laughs> and Glenn Gould. Here we go. I I'll like put on my I'll put on my sleeper time. blinders. No, just kidding. Because I love what she talks about, but no, <laughs> sometimes it's, it's for days, and I love it. <laughs> so with um, Bach, there are a lot of reasons why jazz composers, as you'll come to learn through this episode, harvested music from the Baroque era to have their jazz times. and Is that because there is usually, there's a meter that, yes, it can change, but there's a meter, and that meter isn't like one of my personal favorite eras, you know, 19th century, late 19th century French romantic era where it's like all over the place and it's all emo and dramatic. That would be really hard to like concoct a certain like you can follow that rhythm and you can jazz it up. Is that part of the reason? It might be. It could that that's a good observation. You'll find lot a lot of instances of in particular French romantic keyboard music from that era that's been uh, jazzified as you will. That's a mm-hmm. terrible word. I hate that word, but um but in particular the this uh, composer that we'll hear or not composer this well he was a composer too, but this performer we're going to talk about right now, Jacques Lucier. Uh, his, for the first entire part of his career, basically had a, a 
Play Bach Trio was what it was called. And that trio pretty much exclusively played music from Johann Sebastian Bach. Later in his uh, career, he went back to the trio idea after a brief period of, of not really performing much. And he did do Debussy, Ravel, um, people have done Foray, uh, and uh, Stravinsky. Maybe it was because he was, he was French and he like had it in his bones. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> you know, he grew up with like that, just like emo French kind it's, of It's like. possible, but even Bill Evans, who's an American uh, pianist, who was an American pianist, he did uh, the Foray Pavon. I know, I was so. kind of being facetious. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry to I take mean, all I was the like, fun no, out I was like part. I was like part serious and part not. Okay, so let's yeah. back, back to, so let's Bach. So, so one of the reasons that, that, uh, com- that, performers go to the Baroque era is, uh, there, there are a few reasons, but one of them is that era was known for its improvisatory music. That, that's, what, that's what performers would do. That's what was uh, integral to the Baroque era was improvisation on literally a set of chord changes that were presented before keyboardists were given basically code to, to know what to play, just like jazz musicians, you see a jazz lead sheet, and if you don't know what jazz changes look like, it's going to look foreign to you. Mm-hmm. But it's just a co- it's a shorthand system to know what harmonies to play. Okay. And, and that was just rampant in the Baroque era. Uh, you know, uh, that's how keyboardists learned and other instrumentalists learned to operate in that era. So the, the improvisation is already there. Another reason I think it happened is because harmony tends to change rather quickly in the Baroque era, just like it did in the bebop era eventually. And you've got, you know, Charlie Parker changes just going 90 miles an hour. happened a lot in, in the Baroque era, too. Also, and this is my own personal opinion, I happen to think that Baroque music has a pretty great groove to it in the first place, and that uh, jazz musicians <laughs> found that and capitalized on it. She always makes fun of me for this, but I think jazz, I think Baroque era music has like this really like this kind of freight trainy quality that can almost not swing. It's It's version of swing, you know? Yes. She's unconvinced. No, I mean, I think the version of swing is different than groove, but I hear you. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Partita number one is what you wanted to focus on, correct? Is that um, what I see? From, from Jacques Lussier, initially, we'll hear, uh, we'll hear him play a couple different versions of Bach just because I think it's really pretty what he did with it and really fun. Um, so again, Jacques Lussier uh, was a French pianist in the 20th century who... Uh, focused his uh, entire performance career basically on uh, jazz versions of classical music. So here's the original version of this uh, Allemande from Partita Number no. 1 in B-flat major by Johann Sebastian Bach, played by Glenn Gould. Okay. And then this is what Jacques Lussier and his playback trio uh, did with uh, this uh, Allemande. Great. <laughs> it's very literal too, uh-huh. which is interesting to me. Um, when I was a kid, uh, if I had heard this, I would have hated it. And now I just love it. I I absolutely love Jacques Lussier, and uh, who, by the way, just passed away last year uh, in 2019. The, it's there's a whole little element of like that the little snare and the brushes and just the really random you know there's a just a few little cymbal strikes and the bass that really add this like they just kind of coddle that 
that classic, virtually literal, you know, transposition. It's like, it's, yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. We'll talk a little bit more about Jacques Lussier and uh, his work in this era in, in a bit, but thanks okay. for humoring me. <laughs> I, think, I think that that sounds like a cue to pour some more wine. Yes. <laughs> Can we talk about the color of this we Lord of the Rings wine? Absolutely should talk about the color, please. Because <laughs> first of all, it's nice and cloudy, which I like. Yes. It is it's, like a straw. Yeah. It's kind of like um, if you were to have like a pear kombucha. It's like a straw colored, but it's got more guts in its hue than a typical quote unquote white wine. It's like if blonde hair was a crayon. Yes. That's exactly what it's like. It also, there's really not a ton of skin contact here. My guess is it's whole cluster direct to press, but this is an really? area that's known for, it's quite hot. So what we have in front of us is a wine that's called Edel's Vicar, but it's from California. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a wine, like I said, from a, a winemaker's name is Noel Diaz. He's the winemaker and the owner of Purity Wines. And he decided here to blend Verdello and Sauvignon Blanc. Both very noble varietals. Verdello is probably one of the older varietals that we know of today in existence. Sauvignon Blanc is obviously one of the most popular grapes in the flipping world, yeah. um, and in both quantity and quality. And then you have so those are from Con Contra Costa, so we're really pretty close to an hour east of the Berkeley area, and. That's known for being pretty hot, pretty dry area, a lot of clay soils with some girth, you know? Yeah. And then if you take about a three to four hour drive northeast of Richmond in the Berkeley area, you will be in the San Joaquin Valley, just a, like the utmost northern tip of that area. So we're just south of Sacramento. We're just north of Modesto, for those of you that know California geography. And there he's getting some Malvasia and he's getting some Vermentino, also very old very noble varietals. Vermentino, Malvasia is one of the oldest varietals in the world. And the reason we know that is because there are about 400,000 clones of Malvasia everywhere. <laughs> Everybody's got freaking Malvasia. There is written evidence that it was like around during Greek times, Roman times, very Amazing. early Italian history. What I love about this wine is he decided to blend them all together. And he's kind of meaning a couple different things, I think. He's being like, well, these are noble varietals, so I'll put them together. Mm -hmm. It's also, I think, a little bit of a, I don't want to say a middle finger, because that's not really how Noel, I, I perceive him to be. He's got a sommelier background. He's tasted a lot of good wine. But I think he just really wants to drink and make good wine that mm -hmm. people like. Yeah. With personality, like all of his wines have personality, whether you like them or not. And Edel's Vicar, I think, is like, a lot of people just can't argue that it's really pretty, for the most part, mundane, unless you have a good producer of wine. So this is the antithesis of this. You'd read Edel's Vicar. Like if I saw Edel's Vicar on some natty, flipping hipster California wine, I'd probably buy it because I'd be like, how is this going to be? It's going to be so much different than an Edel's Vicar from Alsace. Yeah. And I just love it. I mean, the color, like you said, it's obviously unfiltered. He does 100% no sulfur winemaking at this point, meaning no sulfur added. And the nose kind of screams of like, I mean, I could see if someone smelled this. It does. It is reminiscent of Edel's Vicar and the fact that old school Edel's Vicar can have some gewurz, some muska. It can be aromatic. Okay. So I don't know. What do you think about how it smells? It, it smells kind of bready, but it, it also, when I first smelled it, reminded me of sugar cookies actually, which was weird. Well, that's probably, that could be a couple things. It's very yeast forward. Yeah, But Sauvignon Blanc and Malvasia are known for being aromatic. They can be aromatic grapes. So you'll get that floral aspect, that kind of lily of the valley kind of aromas, mm. a little bit of like herbs de Provence, but like fresh herbs and flowers and lavender. But then Verdello and Vermentino, they're not really all that aromatic. So they add structure. Vermentino adds body. It usually can be kind of a little waxy and a little oxidative. And that is also, that could be where that color is coming from because Vermentino gains color very quickly. Nice. Verdello, one of my all-time favorite varietals on the planet Earth, and it's so weird and peculiar and hard to understand. Very popular in old school, like Portuguese stuff around that area, Western Spain. But Verdello can kind of add like this angularity and staying power to wine because it, it sometimes it's not delicious from the get-go. It's like all acid and not a lot of flavor 
development okay. until it kind of reaches its own in bottle and has a few months or a few years to kind of coalesce and lose a little acidity. And so I think that's what we have going on here. But this is flipping 2020, basically <laughs> just bottled weeks before I got there. I just visited Noel a few months ago. For those of you who are listening and have not listened to our California episodes, um, Noel was one of the winemakers that I visited and gifted me a few bottles, said, you got to take, oh, I know you love this. You got to take this with you. And I was like, well, when am I going to drink this Edelsvicker? What am I going to be celebrating? And then I was like, mm, it's 2020. I'm not going to be celebrating <laughs> shit. So I'm going to open it for scores and pours yeah. and enjoy it here in the booth. So cheers. Cheers to that. Do you know what I'm going to celebrate in 2020? Surviving. 11.59 p.m. <laughs> on December change, 31st. When it changes over. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, you know what, 2020, thanks for your time. <laughs> We're moving on. Yes. To Noel and to Purity. Thanks, Noel. Thanks, Noel. This is delicious. It has just a small amount of auja, that perlant quality. You know, it's not quite pet natty. I mean, this is actually like a pet nat yeah. in the fact that it probably was bottled with just a touch of sugar, but mm. not enough to make it a full-on pet nap. When we yeah. opened it, there was a pssst, and there's some bubbles. Yeah. But these are like playful, flirtatious bubbles. These aren't like full-on pet nap bubbles. Right, yeah. We had a whole system worked out because you were worried. Well, I wouldn't say worried, but you were aware of the fact that the bottle could, the wine could explode out of the bottle upon opening, but it didn't. We had like the glasses and an an additional overflow Ball jar. Ball at the jar ready. At the ready <laughs> in case. And it didn't. It just was like, Psst, hello. Yeah, hello. I, I love that bitter finish. Oh, it's delicious. It's, yeah. it's totally. It's refreshing. Yeah, and it's like, mm-hmm. again, I've mentioned this on the show countless times. This is what I love about wine. When it can be as complex or simple as you could chug this yeah. or you could sit and kind of contemplate its various parts. Yeah, that's that. I think it would be delicious with like a really fresh salad. Oh yeah, good call. I would love that with a salad. Endive, some frisé, yeah. some citrus right now is the time of year for citrus and some Ooh, good is. like fall chev. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what chev is, but go choose. Okay. You know, let's music before I drink my whole half a glass of wine. Let's talk a little bit more about Jacques Lucier. 1934 was when he was born, and as I mentioned, he uh, passed just last year, 2019. He founded his first trio, the Trio Bach, or Play Bach Trio. He founded in 1959. And the two people that played with him, the bass player and the drummer, both had played with Django Reinhardt, which you may Whoa. or may not know as jazz manouche or um, gypsy jazz is another term for it, or hot club jazz is another term for it. Django Reinhardt, a very famous guitarist from the 30s. And uh, anyway, Jacques Lussier used musicians from, from that. And uh, that trio was together till the mid-70s, and they literally just, like, toured the world and played Bach jazz versions. I'm so grateful that every time we record, I have, like, a one-day to three-day window that I get this amazing playlist in my inbox. And I was like, oh, yay, we have some <laughs> romantic French era music from the, <laughs> uh, from the romantic era, some Debussy, and I love that... Jacques Lussier, his trio actually did a work from Debussy, so that's cool that you included that. Yeah, it's Joyous Isle or Lyle Joyeux or Joyeuse, probably. I'm not good at my French. So here's, okay, I think everybody says Frambois. It's like S-E, it means raspberry. Okay. I think because they want to sound French, but right. I think technically if it's S and there's an E after it, you pronounce the S. The S. Oh, dope. Okay. Word. Yeah. So, Lyle Joyeuse. Joy, joyeuse, yeah. I think. Joyous Isle, Joyful Island, however you want to think of it. Joyous I want to be on a Joyful Island drinking this purity right now. I know, But right? I, that's after we finish this recording because <laughs> yeah. I'm having so much fun. Yeah, so this is a solo piano piece that WC wrote in the early 1900s. So let's listen to a little bit of this original that uh, WC wrote. This is um, 
a French uh, pianist named Jean-Yves Thiboudet, who's actually quite a delight uh, and a hell of a pianist. So here he is playing the original version of Debussy's uh, Joyous Isle. Debussy, man. I know. When Emily's like all Johann Sebastian Bachy over there, that's how <laughs> I am when, when there's some awesome yeah. French Romantic era piano. So good. Just reminds me of everything I really like about that country and its wines and that's an era that I think I romanticize even though women a lot of times don't want to be living in that era yeah. there were other reasons why they if, if you're in like Flynn it was great yeah artistically creatively let's listen to the version done by the Jacques Lucia trio now it worth saying that this was his second era then because in the early days he played Bach when he reformed the trio uh actually um interestingly enough on the tricentenary of Bach's birth in 1985 he resurrected the trio and then started playing a bunch of other composers so this is that trio the second one playing this Debussy joyous isle What's interesting about this as we're listening is that this is relatively at the same tempo, or like they both show right around six minutes, which is... Yeah, in terms of the length of the piece, yeah, yeah. yeah. If I showed up at a jazz concert and this dude was playing, yeah. or... A protege of his was playing this piece. Yeah. You know, knowing it's WCs and yeah. knowing what this is probably going to sound like with a lot of riffs and funsies. Mm -hmm. I'd put on some horse blinders. I'd order a <laughs> martini. <laughs> and I'd put my phone, I'd turn my phone off. Yeah. And I'd just be like with glazed over yeah. look. I would love it too. It's so great. I would love it too. It's kind of constant. Yep. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me because of the fact that otherwise that piece that Debussy wrote does have a very fluid tempo mm -hmm. to it. And that Jacques Lucier... Could we listen to the middle of it? Of Jacques Lucier's? Of um, the Debussy's to listen to that fluid tempo, maybe a little peep part that yeah. a snippet that we didn't get to before. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah. yeah. This is what you would call rubato, where it's mm -hmm. just... To the interpretation of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely written in a meter. There's, you know, the the pianist is following music that's written in a meter, but it's just romantic era allowed for that kind of push and pull, you know, mm -hmm. of, of tempo. Oh, and then, of course, I there are it. sections that are in, in time, you know. Oh, I love it so much. So okay, good. Okay, well, can I... Can I just a quick idea of my hip version of classics that is yeah. very this, yeah. very whimsical. Yeah. I say Pinot Grigio. Everybody out there is going to know what I mean. Yeah. It's white, still usually cheap and cheerful, but like delicious, kind of lighty, light, yeah. whatever. And somewhat uninspiring most of the time. <laughs> but I love when producers in the last, I would say... Probably I've known it for the last shy of 10 years, but about 10 years that people have been doing 
Pinot Gris slash Pinot Grigio with some skin contact. And then it renders this wine that's like anywhere from a really pale pink to a really dark pink, depending on how much time they allow the skins to sit with the juice while they're fermenting the wine. And why? Because when you walk out into a Pinot Grigio vineyard in Alsace, in the United States, northeastern Italy, if you walk through that vineyard, you're going to notice that when the grapes are perfectly ripe, they're like pinkish, kind of grayish in color. They're not white, white. So the reason that Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio and all these famous Pinot Grigios are are white is because... Those grapes are picked, they're pressed straight away, and there's probably some sort of stabilizing and reducing of color if they're if it wow. was a warmer year or anything to get get rid of that. But so you're left with like this wine that is just this nice, pretty white color. But what do we have where we find that color? We also have flavor. So now you're omitting flavor. So that's been something that I've noticed in the last, I don't know, decade is this trend. Now I see more Pinot Grigios and Pinot Gris with skin contact Hmm. in the natural wine world and like at the wine shop that I work at that are pink than I do white Pinot Grigio, which is like, I think, a testament to just how fun the wine market is these days and people experimenting. And of course, winemakers knowing like, wow, if I do some skin contact, I'm going to not only have a beautiful color, but I'll have to add less sulfur to this when when the wine is about to be bottled because antioxidants live in the skin, which is... Like a super, super cool little tidbit that reminded me of that, the, the, the pink. Yeah. Pinkish, flowy nature. Yeah. More music? Yes. Or do you want to? No, yeah, let's more music. I've got, I've got one more thing I really want to talk about, and then, well, Emily just shoves the glass in my face, which I <laughs> love that. I want to talk for a minute about this um, idea of jazz musicians playing classical music. First of all, as I, it's it's gone on since jazz. I mean, that's they they've always been together. And in the early days, in those Miles Davis early days of Miles Davis, even uh, he was doing it. Um, Milt Jackson and John Lewis. John Lewis was a pianist, and Milt Jackson meaning was a, they were riffing on or performing versions playing, of okay playing um, classical playing jazz versions of classical music, and they were also composing new music that blended jazz and classical ideas, whether it's forms or um, concepts, uh, harmonies, melodies. Um, Dude, could that be really similar to, you know, a lot of people that are wine folk that are my age in, in the for, in the early 40s? Yeah. You come from a, you have a background of knowledge of the classics, and now you're able to take all this natural wine that's happening and cool stuff and new mm-hmm. regions that have never been making wine that we've had our hands on, like Mexico, obviously they've been producing wine for 600 years, but like, and we're able to like grasp, get our heads around it and- because we have the knowledge of the classics, is it sort of like that? And, and there's a lot of like newcomers that, you know, they love natty wine and it's super fun, but they have no knowledge of Bach and yeah, stuff like that. So definitely. they just have no idea about the depth of music because it all just sounds the same and it all just has this like, <laughs> yeah. is it kind of like that? Like like if Miles didn't have knowledge of classical music, maybe Miles wouldn't have the depth. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Of course, that that for sure was Hashtag a huge part. Hashtag pours all day, <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, m- more often than not, musicians. I mean, I could totally get myself in trouble here, but a lot of musicians become musicians and learn it from a classical tradition. They're classically trained for all intents and purposes, whether they can read music or not. Mm-hmm. So, this blending of styles has its own name and has become its own genre called third stream. Wow, okay. It's not third stream jazz. It's not third stream classical. It's just third stream. And third stream has been around for decades and decades, and it was people like John Lewis on the piano, Miles Davis, uh, Milt Jackson, Gil Evans, who really loved this blend of of the styles. So it's not... 
third stream, you can't use the term third stream to describe what we heard Bud Powell do. Bud Powell playing a you know, straight up piece from the classical world, that's not third stream. Third stream is a combination of the two styles. It's a new thing. It's a new creation. So, but, so his, when he, two minutes in or whatever, when he put his own spin on that. Well, that's just that? improvising on an existing tune. So that's not, that doesn't really oh, count. Okay. So you're yeah. meaning like the creation of, yep. so someone that has existing knowledge of classical something and mm-hmm. jazz something and putting them together. Yes. So what we're list everything we're listening to here. Well, maybe, so maybe anything that is a combination of the two that has yet to be written. It's a new version. Yeah. A new, not even a version, a new composition. Yes. Is third stream. Yes. Okay. So one example we can use from the composer who coined the term in the first place, a composer named Gunther Schuller. And Gunther Schuller, actually a French horn player that you can find on some of these early Miles Davis, Gil Evans recordings, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Gunther Schuller uh, wrote in this style. There are other composers like Jimmy Jufrey. I've mentioned John Lewis. So let's listen to a composition that Gunther Schuller wrote in the 12-tone tradition, which we've talked about in which comes from the classical music world. And he wrote a 12-tone composition for a jazz ensemble called Transformations. So let's listen to a little bit of it. Everybody just leaves, scores and pours right now. They're like, (laughs) and exit. like what my stomach feels like after a night of <laughs> eating and drinking with wine professionals. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. It's like, bing, why you roll? Yeah, I mean, you can tell it's from the, you know, 20th century. You, yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad that you prefaced it by saying the 12-tone thing, because I'd yeah. be like, classical, really? This just sounds like improv jazz, you know? Yeah. No, this is a very structured uh, piece right here, but there's also improvisation in it. So, yeah, he wrote that piece in 1957, which is actually the same year that he ended up giving a lecture and coining the term, and the term just stuck. And he was very adamant about how, you know, let's not have a bunch of jazz musicians play Bach and call it third stream. He's like, that's not what it is. He's like, third stream is not a jazz musician playing a fugue. It's more than that. It's a blend of these concepts. Well, it sounds like it could be a jazz musician composing a fugue and yeah. doing it with also jazz elements yeah. if as long as that fugue is not something that's already been written. Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. So, yeah, that's a little that's bit about so cool. third stream, and that's why I really didn't want to spend... Because there is a ton of third stream music out there, and it's fabulous. I mean, going back into the 40s and 50s, you're going to find third stream. Do you find that, though, that's one of those things that... Speaking of finding third stream, let's not find that while we're vacuuming or dusting or doing mundane house chores. <laughs> you're like, you're third streaming when you're like cooking or when you're like actively able to kind of listen to something. I mean, maybe. There's it some sounds... really chill third stream though too. Okay. Yeah, cool. definitely. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to dive dive into it. I'd heard about it, but I really didn't know the exact kind of definition that we're proposing here. Yeah, it's great. And we'll we'll do that someday. We should definitely dive into a ton of third stream. Do you um, wanna do you wanna dive into one more wine situation? I do, yeah. Something that is not seasonally appropriate to now, like December, January, February, but is kind of because well I'll just say it, Beaujolais Nouveau. Because this is something that has all kinds of connotations attached to it, whether it's like shitty, trendy Time of year, holiday, whatever. But I'm speaking from a classic point of view. Mm -hmm. This wine, you just don't bat an eye. You put it in a tumbler. It's so good. Drink it over the course of, you know, your celebratory matters and (laughs) forget about it until next year Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But I wanted to to talk about the history and kind of where it's come and how it's been classic and 
become hip, but in a very small realm. I'll just jump right in. 1950s, Beaujolais Nouveau became this thing where every wine region the world over has celebrated their new wine, right? The wine has just finished fermenting. Villages all over the world for millennia have had like, let's drink our wine and get drunk and celebrate. Yeah. Fine. Beaujolais has been known since the 50s, probably before that, of like, still to this day, there are over 120 plus celebrations in Beaujolais alone. Wow. For Beaujolais Nouveau. (laughs) So in the 50s, it was like, let's see who could get our Beaujolais, the fresh run vintage. So it would be like right now, wine finishes fermenting in September or maybe October, rush it to Paris as quick as we can. And on November 15th at 11.59 or maybe 12.01 on November 15th, Let's celebrate Beaujolais Nouveau. Everybody <laughs> just drinking, enjoying the new wine. <laughs> yeah. Georges de Bouffe, this macro winemaker, negotiant owner of Georges de Bouffe, the big house in Beaujolais, was known for really like carrying this banner and promoting Beaujolais Nouveau. And he's probably the person we have to thank or curse for this thunder that is Beaujolais every November because he was like, Got the word out, everybody around the world, why aren't we celebrating Beaujolais Nouveau season? And it just so happened, who was in bed with who, I don't even want to know. <laughs> but in like the mid-80s, they decided, let's have Beaujolais Nouveau release day be on the third Thursday of November every year. What happens then? Who wants to drink on Monday if it's November 15th? Probably <laughs> not you if you're trying to be productive, but on Thursday yeah. in France, it's a drinking day. It's a drinking day in the States. A lot of people have their happy hour. Corporations have their happy hours on Thursdays. So it was like, it's a better day to release something on yeah. a Thursday. Oh, and it just happens to be Thanksgiving time in the States. The third largest importer of Beaujolais Nouveau in the world after Japan and Germany. So it just, there's like hundreds of thousands of bottles go to specific countries. Mm-hmm. So we're talking millions of bottles of Beaujolais Nouveau the majority of which are awful. Like they're usually they're usually <laughs> Why made. Why did you have to check your notes well, to read? I just wanted to make sure I wasn't like forgetting dates. She's like or the something. majority of which, and she looks at her notes are awful. <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs> I just wanted to make sure I wasn't forgetting a date or something. But so, like in theory, you have all these. So wines are quick to market. It's like tossing Beaujolais Nouveau is known for a technique called carbonic maceration, which means we've talked about this on the show before. You have intracellular fermentation happening, meaning it's happening within the berry themselves. You're dumping a whole lot of whole clusters mm-hmm. into a vat. That The weight of the top of the grapes starts to press down and you crush the bottom of the grapes. You're thus emitting through fermentation CO2 that pushes all the oxygen out and then you close that for that container. So now you have all these berries are fermenting within themselves if they have not yet been crushed. Mm-hmm. Then you crush that, and everybody's like, oh, Beaujolais smells like bananas. No, <laughs> it's because they add yeast 71B <laughs> that makes it taste like shitty bananas and candy, <laughs> and hence all this gross. And everybody, like in the wine business, it was just until like people that honestly knew good wine and they weren't just trying to make a buck didn't give a shit about Beaujolais Nouveau five years ago. Honestly, this is maybe a little harsh opinion. I'm going to get some DMs on this. But like until producers like the one that we just tasted, which is so good on like day one through day four, Remy and his wife Laurence uh, Dufetre, who they make some awesome crew Beaujolais, like higher end single village. They make a Beaujolais Nouveau because they're like, why not? I mean, we make it in concrete, native ferment. And it tastes like delicious young wine, but it doesn't taste like cheap yeah. glycerol yeah. candy. It tastes like wine. Yeah. And it made me think like, wow, it seems so like hippie and trendy Beaujolais Nouveau, but actually Beaujolais Nouveau is classic and it's kind of bullshit <laughs> until you get to these really cool producers who are now starting to re-enliven like, well, we can we can do Edel's Vicar. We can do 
Beaujolais Nouveau, but we can do it in a way that's like a little different. It's how we do it. And yeah, yeah it's not as cheap and cheerful, but still cheerful. Mm-hmm. And it's, hey, you're not spending $50 for Dufetra, now you're spending 20 instead Amazing. of eight for Beaujolais Nouveau. So Beaujolais Nouveau people will be like, why is this $20 Beaujolais Nouveau? <laughs> well, because it doesn't have 19 ingredients. Yeah. And tastes like wine, not candy. My soapbox is done for this episode. <laughs> so we're going to end on something from our own backyard. There's a really fantastic trio here in the Twin Cities. I mean, they're international now, but they're called the Bad Plus. And the Bad Plus used to be uh, drummer Dave King, bassist Reed Anderson, and pianist Ethan Iverson. There's a new pianist now, a, a man named Oren Evans, who's a, amazing. What um, I love is like Iverson, Anderson, Minneapolis, just lots yeah. of sons, lots <laughs> yeah. of Scandinavian. It's kind of yes, cute. Exactly. So uh, they did a version of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, which oh, is super so cool. cool. And they released that in 2014. The ballet uh, came out in 1913, and this is such a famous story, Igor Stravinsky's premiere of this ballet. There was a riot and blah, blah, blah. Um, but any event, in any event, the music is fantastic, and it opens, traditionally speaking, with a beautiful, well, it opens with a bassoon solo, the original version does. Of course, there's no bassoon in the Bad Plus, so... Uh, Ethan Iverson plays it on the piano and it's really lovely. So let's listen first to how the original composition opens and uh, then we'll hear a little bit from the Bad Plus. We'll hear a couple different movements. Yep. So this is the bad plus. Yeah, there was a little bit there a second ago where I was like, don't just put on the echo pad and then that's okay. But I like that a lot. So do you mind if we do the, what you're, I think you're about to do is you're going to play the spring rounds. Oh yeah, spring rounds. Both of them because it's way more what yeah. I would think of like as jazzy. Yeah. This is this hands seems, down, in my opinion. This seems more like third stream, but it's not because yep. it's been done already. Yeah, but the, the spring rounds part of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring is... No, but do you mind doing the... Oh, oh the d- original. Yeah. yeah. Stravinsky. Okay, now All let's. Right. So this is the bad, bad plus. plus. Stand up bass. Yeah. <laughs> I love that they kind of slow it down a bit. Like, you almost never hear this this slow. I love well, it. What's really cool about these guys, too, is, you know, they yeah, they've been around since 1990, but they did their last studio album a year ago. Oh, like they, they're still really yeah. relevant in the world. Oh, of, yeah. You know, yeah. they're still it's making great a lot of music. And, yeah, the Bad Plus, that's a whole rat hole you can spend a lot of time in, and it's amazing. Or just follow Dave King, the drummer. Just follow all his projects. That'll make your head spin. <laughs> Happy Apple, 
You'll never regret that. You'll never regret Halloween Alaska. I mean, Dave King. Uh, Dave King Trucking Company. Great band. Happy Apple's probably my favorite, personally, but... To the classics, always influencing the hip. Yes. Or the hip that are smart enough to pay attention to the classics. <laughs> and the same goes for wine. So the scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode. You'll find a playlist. You'll find a wine list. And you'll find uh, ways you can support us financially, which we would greatly appreciate if you could do that at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. You'll also find a link there to get merch like hoodies and tees. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours. It's a great place to direct message us, give us some show ideas, give us some feedback. And speaking of feedback, we'd love it if you could rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. So Spotify, Apple, iTunes, etc. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Jim. Jim. Little kitty. <laughs>